0: Welcome to episode 4 of Chasing Majors, where Tiger Woods' former caddy Steve Williams takes you behind the scenes of the major championships they won together. In this episode, we will relive the 2000 PGA Championship where Tiger faced his toughest ever Sunday battle at the majors. Tiger had won the US Open in June and the British Open in July, so the PGA Championship in August presented an opportunity to win three majors in a row. What transpired at the 2000 PGA became one of the most captivating victories in major championship history. Majors is proudly brought to you by Blue Bet, a true blue Aussie betting company. Uh, you and Tiger have just won the British Open at St Andrews and in doing so Tiger has captured the Career Grand Slam, which is of course winning all four major championships in your career. How did you personally celebrate after that because that's a historic moment for you to contribute to that performance and sort of what did you do in the weeks after Scotland?
1: Yeah, so after the Open Championship at St. Andrews, I flew back to Orlando with Tiger, and then I went from Orlando to a place in Oregon where, where we have a home. And actually, the boys at the pro shop put a surprise party on. I got back, and one of the boys said the next day, oh, you want to have a game of golf, So, yeah, yeah, we played in the afternoon. And and then when we came back to the evening call, I thought, there's something yeah, a bit odd. There's a lot of cars in the car park here. <laughs> and we had a big a big surprise party in the sort of restaurant area at, at the shop there. So yeah, it was pretty exciting.
0: What was the name of the golf club and what part of Oregon is that?
1: Yeah. So I, I have a place in, uh, it's called Sun River, Oregon. Uh, it's in central Oregon, uh, near, near a place called Bend. It's about 150 miles south and east of Portland, Oregon, um, high desert area. Um, kind of an unusual place. It's a far off, off the beat place, hard place to get to. <laughs> but um, I stumbled across the place and it, it, it sort of reminded me of New Zealand a lot. So <laughs> I ended up um, spending a lot of time there and and brought a home there to use a little bit. Um, I frequently came back to New Zealand between... If Tiger had um, more than a week off, I'd generally most of the time come back to New Zealand. But when I only had a week off... Um, I like to go to Oregon. Yeah, so um very very good place.
0: So that, so they threw you a little surprise party. What was the name of the golf club and and what was that like to personally? Like did, did you become a bit of a, you know, like a little golf celebrity there at that golf club and everyone knew your name and was was happy to see you? Yeah,
1: well, yeah, so I, um it's the golf course is called Sun River. Um it, it's a resort destination and it has uh 54 holes of golf there and yeah, I I liked as much as I like caddying, I like potting around on the golf course too. So there I would be actually – I I liked helping on the with the ground staff. It's something I've always done. I, I do it today at my own course. So even though I caddie and whatever, but I, I'd always help the ground staff there. I just I, – I'd, I'd be on the course a lot. So people yeah, get to know. But uh, I've always liked being on a golf course. I just see something special about being on a golf course, whether it's playing, caddying. Or I, I love actually just being on a golf course and and I like to work on a golf course.
0: That's amazing. Can you imagine if you're the ground staff at Sun River Golf Club and you've just watched on TV as Tiger Woods has captured the career grand slam at St. Andrews and, you know, maybe a few days later, his caddy Steve Williams is helping you out with the greens.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, the the, the ground staff of the course absolutely um, loved the connection because every time when Tiger won a major, the deal was I'd buy all the ground staff pizza. (laughs) So they watched, they were always watching because they knew when he won the next, the following Friday, there'd be pizza. <laughs> Even if I wasn't there, uh, I would organize a local pizza shop there at, at, in the village there. The guy I knew very well, Matt, and I'd he'd get, he'd deliver pizza for all the boys. So they, they loved
0: that. Well, that is, that is awesome. How, how important was it for you to have a little base in the US? Like you said, in those times, we only had a week off just to go and refresh, but not have to leave the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Oregon, the place called, so like I said, it's called, it's called Sun River. Not an easy place to get to. Only, uh, there's only flights from a couple of small, it's a regional airport, and only a couple of flights to different small airports. So it's not an easy place to get to. But uh, I, I like going there because it reminded me of New Zealand. Um, and it was sort of the people in that part of the country, uh, Oregon, Washington, sort of, I always felt were, somewhat similar in their mindset to New Zealand so it, it, it just reminded me of home, actually but uh, yeah it was it was a good place to go to. and it's I'm not particularly fond of the very hot and humid weather which you get on the east coast which is more central to be but there it's um, high altitude so the air is very clear and low humidity so it was a place I dearly love
0: yeah yeah beautiful place Oregon so Steve, um, Tiger said in a press conference a couple of weeks after St. Andrews that he did have a small window after the British Open where he didn't touch a club and then of course I imagine you would have flown from Oregon down there to Isleworth in Orlando Florida while Tiger sort of sharpened his game up. Um, what what would he work on in that first practice session back from a break? Because I imagine he it didn't happen often where he didn't touch a club. Yeah, look,
1: uh, uh, when I first started caring for Tiger he just never ever not touched a club he, and then slowly he'd take a day off and then and a day turned into two days off, then three days and then it became a week. You know, he, when you get that, you know, in sync with what you're doing and that you, you get afraid to put the clubs away and that was something that he struggled to do with. It, but, he, but he, you know, he learned as he went along that, you know, I can put them away for a day, for two days, three, and it became a week and later in his career it became a couple of weeks where he put the clubs away. And it was a very important thing for him to learn be able to do that because you just can't play every day Um, but he did struggle there for some time of not being able to put the clubs away he just had to have a swing had to have a hit on the range had to have a putt whatever it was just but um, when he had taken a break of any length and he came back uh, he was very specific on working on the fundamentals i.e the grip the stance alignment and that sort of thing. He'd go through his little checklist, and then, he, you know, he, he always had <clears> – <throat> he liked to get the club in a position on his back, swing and that, and he'd just go through a, a checklist that he had to make sure everything was correct. You know, it's very easy to, you know, when you haven't played for a couple of weeks, just put the club in your hand and maybe not be aligned properly, not be gripping it the same as you should be. So he'd just have a little checklist and go through those, and, and it never even took long, you know, for everything to get back into flow and back into sync.
0: I imagine Butch, his swing coach, Butch Harmon, would have been there to go through that checklist with him. But did you play any role? Because you were closer to Tiger than anyone, um, did you play any role in helping him get through that checklist?
1: Yeah. Look, he he'd always ask some things. You know, you he, know, he had several points that that I could stand behind him and notice whether, whether this was wrong or this was right. If he was doing this, or not doing that. So there's several things that we'd look at together. Uh, And just make sure that every you know was how it should be.
0: Well, a couple of weeks before the PGA, you and Tiger took a quick reconnaissance trip to Valhalla Golf Club, which is of course just outside Louisville, Kentucky. Can you give us an insight into what those fly-in, fly-out visits to a major championship venue are like for an elite golfer like Tiger? Because um, you know, like the course would be empty, the grandstands would be up, and all the staff are excited because Tiger's in town and, and they might get to have a photo with him before all the crowds come. So so what's it like, those little, you know, fly-in, fly-out visits for for an elite golfer like Tiger?
1: Yeah, well, the, it's, Tiger started doing this and 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 a number of players started doing it and became very popular because you go there prior to the tournament, whether it be the weekend before or two or three weeks before, and what that does is just give you an opportunity to play the course with nobody behind you, nobody in front of you. You can take your time and you can have a very good look. And it's very peaceful when you get to a tournament site, uh, particularly somewhere like this, where they haven't had a major championship or they don't even have a PGA Tour. you know, it's going to be a lot of noise and a lot of excitement. So the practice rounds sometimes can be quite distracting and you, it's hard to concentrate on what you're trying to achieve. So if you go there before, you can just have a nice little walk around the course and get a, Feel for the shots you're going to need, where your aim points are going to be, your target's going to be, and you know, where you think the pin positions are going to be. And, and you, you know, you, you're not in a hurry. Sometimes when you're playing a practice round, you, you know, you've got groups behind you and it gets, or, or, you know, you feel like you might be getting pushed or it might be very slow one or the other. So those practice rounds are very good. And I always like those as well because you get a chance to uh, I always felt that if you could ask any of the assistant pros there, is there any s- Things at this golf course, like some local knowledge that might help, and often you get some little details from some of the assistant pros that would really tremendously help you. So I always did that. You know, and of course you can get the opportunity. It's not that busy, and you can go in there. And typically, a lot of these places, two or three weeks out before a major championship, the course is actually closed because they shut it right down. They got to put up all the infrastructure that goes just you know, and it's hard to have members playing and so forth. And also, it gets the golf course in pristine condition. So you're out there, you know, and it's very easy to go and ask the system pros. That's, that's what I like to do. But, um, you know, th- th- those, those rounds are invaluable because there's nobody out there and you can take your time and you can really get a good idea of what the course is. So when you leave and go away, you, you, you know what sort of shots you're going to have to hit on certain holes now, and you can actually start working on some of those shots, which Tide would often do.
0: Chasing Majors is made possible by our friends over at Bluebet. Bluebet is the True Blue Aussie betting company which offers plenty of markets in professional golf. Bet on your favourite golfers on various tours around the world, including every tournament on the USPGA Tour both pre-tournament and in-play bets like first-round leaders and three-ball betting. There'll also be plenty of markets for the majors starting with the upcoming Masters in April. One of my favourite bets on the Bluebet app is Tiger to win a major in 2022, and I think we'd all love to see him make another comeback. So head over to bluebet.com.au or download the Bluebet app from the iPhone or Android app stores and gamble responsibly. For the 2000 PGA Championship, Tiger took a different approach to preparations compared to the other three majors that year. Tiger had taken the week off before the Masters, the US Open and the British Open so that he could work on his game at home in Florida. But this time, Tiger played the Buick Open in Flint, Michigan the week before the PGA, which is kind of amazing that he changes his preparation and still goes on to win. Now the reason for playing the Buick Open was Tiger had signed a five year deal with car manufacturer Buick in 1999 which was worth a reported $25 million. Buick had become the first corporate sponsor of the PGA Tour in 1958 and their headquarters was in Flint, Michigan, so this tournament was important to them. Tiger was their big ambassador and he was obligated to play the tournaments that they sponsored and he also had to put Buick on his golf bag, which is the most valuable piece of real estate in terms of sponsorship for a professional golfer. Naturally, Buick made a big song and dance when they unveiled Tiger's new Buick golf bag at a function in Flint, Michigan in '99. Tiger and a Buick executive were standing on a stage in a hotel ballroom when the executive removed a silver cloth that had been covered in the golf bag, almost like the unveiling of a statue. People in the crowd applauded and the Buick executive said to Tiger, I hope you can fit all your clubs in there. And Tiger quickly joked, don't worry, Stevie will be carrying that. Steve, did Tiger insist anything had to be in his golf bag particularly at all times or was that more your decision?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so w- w- one thing that uh, every pro that i care okay for, I'm sort of, I have a bit of a reputation for this, but every pro that I care for ends up eating peanut butter and banana sandwiches because that's what I—that's what I eat. So,
0: oh, really? <laughs>
1: so they—they they, they get one on the seventh tee and then on the thirteenth tee. So that's just uh, what you know—one third of the way through the round, and two thirds of the way through through the round. So that's one thing that goes in the bag.
0: Is that just an old school, um, you know, like fuel trick for you? You know, like you know that'll provide the nutrients that they need for the round.
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I always had as a kid. And, and, and like we used to have that when I played rugby, that's what we'd have at half time, you know, a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> so I just carried that on. So we always had that in the bag. Um, he, he, Tiger didn't really have any any sort of superstitions as what he had in the bag. And that, you know, just, he didn't really have any sort of superstitions uh, at all, to be honest. But um, one thing that he did carry in his bag at the 2000 Open Championship, and it was played you know, a few weeks before, he took a tee that had the Open Championship 2000 and he, for the entire rest of the time that I came from, that tee was in the bag. That was his
0: good luck tee.
1: Didn't use it, it was in the bag.
0: That, that's awesome. So, so Tiger shoots some solid scores, but he ties for 11th at the Buick Open. Was he just sort of conserving energy because there it wasn't very often in his career that he would play a tournament the week before a major. Was he saving himself for the PGA the following week? Yeah,
1: look, I mean, the, the golf course, you know, Tiger would typically not play um, the week before a major championship, seldom, in this whole time they came from, you do that, and particularly this was an unusual one as well, because the golf course, Flint, Michigan, resembles nothing uh, of, of like a major test for championship golf, it's just sort of a fun course and a um, small town tournament that actually, despite being a small town tournament, one of the best tournaments on the tour. The atmosphere at this place was just unbelievable and it's a very tight course and the spectators get very close to the players there. Um, but he played he played decent. Um, you know, of course, he he, he loved to peak. His, one of the things that he was able to do better than most top players was be able to peak. So, you know, he didn't want to be peaking right there. So, you know, he was certainly um, in good form and shot four decent rounds there. Um, your Tiger had a very good analogy of when you look at some things like when you look at a course like that um, and there's 156 players in the field there's probably 100 guys in the field that can shoot better than 64. Um, if you went to a golf let's just say um, Muirfield village where they hold the memorial Tournament, there's 156 guys in the field there's probably only 40 guys can shoot 64 or better so that's the kind of tournaments you enter so tiger notoriously did not play a lot of the tournaments that the courses were easy, like the Bob Hope Classic and the Phoenix Open and and a lot of these courses where the, the winning score was a lot under par, because what that tells you is the courses look not as difficult as some of the other courses. So, one of the incredible things about Tiger is as many tournaments as he's won, um, he has won a lot of tournaments that are big time tournaments. You know, you know, like he, he used to categorise them as A, B, C, and D tournaments, and yeah. <laughs> that's how he'd look at it. Uh, but that is an interesting analogy. And Greg Norman sort of used the same sort of thinking a little bit as well. Like, you know, the harder the golf course, the better the player. You know, the better you are, the more chance you've got to win because the skill level required the player championship course is far more greater than it is to play an easy course so the Buick Open was not sort of a course that you would think that it would, he would play but hence he signed a deal with Buick and he played in the tournament
0: well yeah exactly right and and that's why he made his hay at, at tournaments like um, Memorial which is at Muirfield Village Golf Club in Ohio very difficult golf course he won that a number of times um, same with the, with the Bay Hill Golf Club in Orlando Florida very very difficult golf course he won that a number of times so, um, just after the Buick Open, you and Tiger head back to Florida for a practice session for just the one day on the Monday, and then you're back off to Kentucky for the PGA Championship. Was there a particular reason for sort of going home just for the one day to practice?
1: Yeah, so, you know, what, because he got, he got familiar with the golf course prior to the tournament, and that. And, and a lot of times, the you know, you, there was no doubt in the lead up to the PJ Championship being in Kentucky, that there was going to be a, a, a lot of people there. So it was going to be, we knew the practice rounds were going to be very busy there. And there's going to be a lot of people, a lot of fanfare, which is great. Um, so it was, you know, good to go and do a day's practice at home on the zone, you know, at his home course, away from the tournament and then get up there. He felt his game was in good shape and he just, you know, he felt it was beneficial to go and practice at home for a day, as opposed to going to the tournament site.
0: Well, that's exactly right, because uh, Valhalla Golf Club had, had, of course, hosted the 1996 PGA Championship, um, but Tiger um, you know, wasn't, wasn't the star that he would become in the year 2000, so a lot of these fans in Louisville wouldn't have seen Tiger Woods, but they'd read about him and watched him, watched him on television, so the, the practice rounds, I imagine, would have just been chaos, and, and that brings me to my next question. So, after you go back to Florida for the, for the uh, quick practice session, you come back to Kentucky, and the day that you and Tiger arrived, the crowd to watch Tiger play a practice round on a Tuesday, with his, with and Tiger was playing with Marco Mera that day, was 25,000 people at 11.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. Can you remember that?
1: Yeah, look, it was, you know, typically Tiger didn't play practice rounds in the middle of the day. Uh, he's notorious for playing early in the morning and late. But because he'd gone back to his home and following the Buick time, he flew back to Kentucky on Tuesday morning so he played right in the middle of the field and it was was just bedlam, I mean it was unbelievable because um, Kentucky doesn't hold a PGA Tour event um, and it's a sports uh, it's a sports town, I mean it's somewhat like Chicago, I mean they just love sport in the state of Kentucky Um, college basketball, college football is massive there uh, as obviously as the horse racing industry but um, yeah they, they you know, Tiger was on a roll and a lot of people who would never have seen him before and um, yeah, they came out in droves. Yeah, it was a, it was for a practice round. It was unbelievable. It was just like, you know, it was electric.
0: Valhalla Golf Club is a golf course in Louisville, Kentucky, designed by the great Jack Nicklaus and opened for play in 1986. Valhalla first hosted the PGA Championship in 1996, but the PGA of America surprised many by taking its major championship back there only four years later. Nicholas was renowned for designing resort-style courses with wide fairways but difficult approach shots. Many in golf, however, speculated that the wide fairways here would actually invite some of the less accurate competitors into contention and therefore Tiger's superior driving would be less of an advantage. But as Steve recalls, that wasn't a concern for Tiger himself.
1: Tiger was, at that particular point in time, he was driving the ball fantastic and long. Um, He he was very, very long. and. When you've got generous fairways, um, it, it entices you to, you know, to really give it a hit, um, which he was doing right there. I mean, he was lacing it. And you know, so he's he it's even though the fairways are generous, it's still to his advantage because he's hitting a shorter club under the green than most of the other guys. I mean, he was absolutely lacing it that
0: week. Tiger is actually paired with Jack Nicholas and VJ Singh for the first two days. And we look back on it now, and it's obviously a very special occasion that two of the greatest players, probably the two greatest players in the history of golf, were paired together in a major championship, and it was actually the last PGA Championship that Jack Nicklaus would ever play in, because he retired from the event that week. How special was that for you and Tiger to be paired with Jack?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was fantastic. It was, you know, it certainly was a pairing that we weren't expecting. Um, But, you know, I think that gave Tiger, you know, not that he needed any more incentive than there already was to try and You know, win three majors in a row and and be the first player since Hogan to do that. But, you know, playing with Jack, um, it's like, you know, this is the passing of the torch sort of thing here. One, you know, Jack's the greatest player. This is the next greatest player. Um, I felt Tiger wanted to impress Jack and his demeanor was slightly different. Uh, He was, in my mind, he really wanted to impress Jack. Um, Because he knew it was the last time that he would play with him competitively, and I think he wanted to just, you know, let Jack know how good he actually is. Um, And he, you know, he just played phenomenal golf. And I mean, Jack was just like, you know, I had a great relationship with Jack, uh, and spoke to him. And even when I was prior to caddying for Tiger. Uh, and when I was carrying Ray Floyd and Ray, you know, being of the same age era as Jack, they would play common and they'd play together. And uh, I had no qualm in asking Jack a lot of questions, and he was great. He'd always answer those questions. He was fantastic. So, um, you know, I, I, when we when it was all said and done, we shook hands and everything following the the, the end of the Friday round that. Jack just said to me, he said one thing, he said, just make sure you stick with this fella, Steve.
0: (laughs) What's the different demeanor that you speak of? Is it just more of a, um, you know, the way that he walks or that he talks or is it the focus? Was he extra focused sort of trying to tell Jack that, you know, I'm ready to, to take the torch from you and be the greatest player in the game?
1: Yeah, he, he, he was just, he was incredibly focused and he was walking somewhat slower than he normally would walk. He was he was really into it. He, he just wanted to impress Jack. I mean, it was a great pairing because, you know, it, it just gave him a little bit of extra incentive. You know, not that he didn't need any incentive. It's a major championship and that, and that in itself is what he lives for and he had the opportunity to win three of the four that year and so forth. But um, he, he, he just was really taking it and he was taking it all in too. Um, he was watching, you know, how Jack dealt with the crowd. You know, the, you know these people haven't seen Jack Nicholas either in Valhalla, um, so it was a fantastic pairing, and, and it sort of, it certainly was part of the reason why Tiger won that tournament.
0: Full credit to the PGA of America, which which runs the PGA Championship, for coming up with that pairing, because we're still talking about it twenty years, uh, twenty one years later. It's just just incredible. Now on the Friday, Jack Nicholas actually needed an eagle on the last hole to make the cut. And he almost did that. He almost held his sandwich for his third shot to pull that off. He tapped it in for birdie, and he missed out by one shot. But but even Jack really stepped up to the stage those two days, didn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you, you know, it, it, it was his last time playing in the in the PJ, as it was his last time playing at the US Open at Peel Beach. There, so it was quite a bit of a you know, it was a special season that season, the two thousand season for you know, for several reasons, including, you know, Jack's final appearance at three of the majors. Um, But, yeah, so it, it was like to stand back and watch him on that last hole. I mean, he nearly hold that shot. <laughs> it was just, the crowd was just, it was, you yeah, know, it was, it's fascinating when you you, know, you you watch these guys that are just the greatest, how, how they just feed off the gallery, and they, you know, and they rise to the occasion. It was, it was really good fun, and you know, and he's a super nice bloke to play with, and, and, and you know, obviously... Uh, you, a lot to be learned from watching someone like them.
0: Chasing Majors is proud to partner with XBlades, who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world-class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules and netball. The team at Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors. He always finished well, Jack Nicklaus, no matter how he played in that round, no matter how old he was or where he was at in his career, he always played the 18th hole well, didn't he? So, Steve, to wrap up the scores from the first two days, Tiger shoots a 66 and then a 67 to lead Scott Dunlap by one shot at the halfway mark with Fred Funk, J.P. Hayes, and Davis Love III close behind. Now, in round three, we need to give Tiger credit for hanging in there on on moving day because he was paired with Dunlap and he was cruising through the front nine but tiger then had a double bogey and another bogey sort of midway through the back nine he settled himself and he shot a 70 on the Saturday to hold on to a one shot lead going into the final round and to make sure that he was in that final group with bob may who we will get to in a second and and bob was obviously you know tied second how tough was tiger on that Saturday to hold on
1: yeah look he clearly didn't have his best stuff that day um and he you know he was grinding hard that day the birdie on the 18th hole, which ensured that he got in the final pairing, was huge because he'd love to be in the final pairing because you know you, you 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 control what's going on or you know what you've got to do, vice versa. Um, and, and he felt, despite being out of sync a little bit and, and not hitting some of the best shots, he, he certainly didn't play at the same level he played with on Thursday and Friday. Um, but that birdie on the 18th hole, which assured that he got in the final pairing, gave him. A, Tremendous amount of confidence heading into Sunday, but you know Tiger was always on a day when he was out of sync, and that and, and that's a true testament to a champion is that you know he could still scramble around. That's what you've got to do to be great in golf, and particularly at that level, that when you have a poor day of ball striking, that you can somehow still get it around and keep yourself in contention.
0: It's time to introduce Tiger's final group playing partner of the two thousand PGA Championship, and that's Bob May. As far as the Majors go, Bob May deserves credit for standing up to Tiger in his prime, probably more than any other player ever did. Like Tiger, May grew up in Southern California but he was 7 years older than Tiger and actually set all the junior golf records that Tiger made a point of going out and breaking for himself. May probably came as a surprise to some golf fans during the 2000 PGA, but he was a solid player who had won the British Masters on the European Tour the year before. At Valhalla, May was ranked 48th in the world, but it was clear after only a couple of holes on Sunday that he was not scared of Tiger Woods. Steve, I believe that Bob had a caddy who was a Kiwi just like yourself, but he actually wasn't at the PGA Championship. He wasn't caddying for Bob that week, was he?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a shame actually because the caddy, uh, the guy by the name of Max Cunningham, both himself and myself grew up at the same golf course, Pada Umu Beach in New Zealand. Uh, Max didn't make the trip over that week. He just didn't think it was worth it. <laughs> um, I can't imagine what he was thinking sitting on the couch watching it. <laughs> but, um, you know, Tiger was well aware uh, of of Bob May and, you know, all the records that he held in Southern California as a junior. In that. And, um, you know, I don't think in all the major championships uh, over 18 holes of golf. I mean, certainly like... In, like Mickelson played one of the best nines I've ever seen anybody play ever at the Masters one time when him and Tiger going at it. But for 18 holes, um, Bob May, I mean, it was
0: legendary. Is it the greatest challenge Tiger ever faced in the majors in a final round?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, no question. I mean, nobody played 18 holes of golf like Bob May did when they were challenging Tiger to win a major at all in the time I came from.
0: So Tiger's in his famous Sunday red and black, but Steve, can you please explain to me how Tiger bogeys two of his first six holes and then goes out and birdies seven of his final 12 holes in regulation to force a playoff? How does someone flip the switch like that?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, he he warmed up fantastic on the range on Sunday. Uh, I mean, it was absolutely pure in that. And, and sometimes it's amazing. It's hard to actually analyze this and, and where it comes to, but a lot of times... You're so nervous that you actually, you know, and Tiger was as nervous as anybody. I mean, that's hard for people to comprehend because, you know, he cares so much about what he does and how he performs. He gets nervous and he was incredibly nervous and I always sensed that. But sometimes he just needed to get out there and when he'd make a bogey that that, was just sometimes it was actually better to make a bogey, you know, because that sort of got him going, got him, you know, woke him up sort of things. And, um, you know, I, I never, ever got worried when he make, you know, he'd make a, a couple of poor shots early on that, you know, knowing that he just warmed up perfectly. But, uh, yeah, uncharacteristically, he did make a couple of, boge- a couple of sloppy bogeys um, to get going. But, I mean, um, you yeah, know, he kicked it into gear, and it was, it was spectacular golf to watch, not only from him, but from Bob May.
0: And we will get to their incredible back nine, Jill. It was one of the back nines for the ages. But I just want to ask, what Tiger said to you about Bob, which you've told me uh, off air about walking off the twelfth tee that day.
1: It was quite an unusual moment, you know. I always walk quick, known for that, and, and there's a reason behind that. But um, so once Tiger did his tee shot and, and, and so forth, and I started, you know, getting it. I always walked ahead of him most of the time. Uh, he said, "Hey, Stevie," and I turned around and go, "I just want to tell you something." He said, "This guy will not back down." <laughs> <laughs> and I and I thought that was quite strange because I, you know, I didn't know much of Bob May and he said this guy won't back down he won't go away I can tell you that right now from, from our days in junior golf and so forth and the records that he has he said he won't go away and I thought that was kind of an unusual statement for Tiger to tell me that but I distinctly remember going up the 12th tee and thinking oh okay and he certainly didn't back down Bob May he, he just hit shot after shot including his second shot on the 12th hole so um, yeah, Tiger was exactly right in his assessment of that.
0: That is the utmost respect that you can be paid in professional golf. Tiger Woods saying that you will not back down and that Tiger knows he has to go out there and win it.
1: Yeah, like I mean, he, you know, this is Bob May we're talking about. This is not one of the other great players that were challenging Tiger through the years uh, of his dominance, that, you know, one of the other great players that played the game. This is Bob May, which very few people watching the telecast that told, you know, wouldn't have known who Bob May was. And that's not taking any away from him, but he certainly wasn't a household name. And and for Tiger to say, this guy won't back down, I'm telling you right now, <laughs> it's pretty fascinating.
0: Oh, I'd be flattering. So, Steve, this is regarded as, you know, as we've mentioned a, a few times, the strongest battle Tiger probably ever faced in the majors. And I'm going to read out some of the back nine highlights. So Tiger, put, Tiger actually loses the lead and then pulls even with Bob after eight holes. And then we get to the back nine. On the par five tenth, they both get up and down from the sand for birdie. On 11, Bob sinks a 25-foot birdie putt that puts him in the lead. At the 12th, a 467-yard par-4. Bob hits an 8-iron from 181 yards to 2 feet for his third straight birdie. But then Tiger steps up and drains a 15-footer to stay one shot back of Bob. They both hit great shots into the par-3 14th. And then Tiger holes a downhill sidehill 15-foot birdie. Bob responds, as he did all day with his own birdie. At the par 4, 15th, Bob hit a 7-iron to within 6 feet, but this is kind of the turning point. So at the 15th, he hits a 7-iron to 6 feet, but he misses the birdie, and after a poor approach shot, Tiger is looking dangerous, but then he sinks a 15-footer for par to keep that momentum. Tiger then claws back, even with Bob, at the 17th hole with the birdie. How crucial was that birdie on 17, do you think?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, interesting... When I, you know, when I, when I think back and, you know, like I said, off that twelfth tee, Tiger goes along and, and tells me that this guy won't back down, and, and and you know, two minutes later, this guy hit the best shot of, of the day, 181 yards eight iron, he's nearly older. and I said, and I, and I said to Tiger, "Well, you got that right." <laughs> but um, the 17th hole was actually um, a hole that I, I recall very fondly because. I'd worked out, and you know, obviously I've been on the bag now for, uh, you know, a reasonable period of time, and I'd worked out that Tiger became very, well, not became, but when he got a perfect yardage, invariably he'd hit a perfect shot. When, he, when the yardage was comfortable, he'd hit a perfect shot. Um, so on the second shot on the 17th hole there on Sunday, um, it was like 104 yards off memory. And I I told him it was 98, um, which was a really ballsy thing to do. It was the first time I did this because I I wanted him to hit a 60 degree wedge. And I didn't really want to have an argument with him. I didn't want to have to try and convince him. So I thought, you know what, I'll just change the yardage. So he won't, so he won't even think it's a sandwich. He'll just automatically say, well, that's a perfect yardage for the 60. Um, and the pin was on the front there, and I'm th- you know it was a huge risk because if it if, if, you know if it, if it doesn't go 104, you know it's 104, but I'm telling him it's 98. If it doesn't go 104, it's going to plug in that bunker, and you know you you're going to be the first loser.
0: <laughs> that that is absolutely incredible because there you know a couple of tiger super fans who, who'll be listening to these podcasts. They know that you gave him the wrong yardage deliberately on the third shot of the 2008 US Open on the on the 72nd hole to force a playoff, but we don't know where that started. So I find that absolutely astounding that you were willing to give the greatest player who has ever lived wrong yardages and, and it paid off. And so that's where it started.
1: That was the very first time I did it because I'd worked out that, you know, when he got a if it was a perfect yardage, you know, it was 136 yards, which was a wedge. He'd hit it. He'd just be. It feels so good, you know. He wasn't trying to take a little off, it, or he wasn't trying to take a little. Hit it a little hard and all. And I just said to myself, I'm, "I'm just going to tell him it's 98 yards. That was a perfect 60 degree. That's what he hit it, and, and that was the very start of it. And it was a huge risk at that time because I mean, this is you know, he's trying to win the the PJ Championship. When he's you know in an incredible battle and so forth. Um, but something just told me to do it, and as you know, Evan, you know, I'm I'm an old school caddy. I caddy by feel a lot, um, and I go by eyeballing it. Um, and you know, if I fast forward myself twenty years and I had a stint carrying for Jason Day, um, I basically couldn't do it because he was a, he's a modern player and I'm an old school caddy, and it just didn't marry up. But in my entire time of caddying uh, for Tiger, that was the first moment I did that. And and then it led to doing it frequently to the point where one year at Bay Hill, on the Sunday, it was very hot and the greens were rock hard. I didn't give them the right yardage once. (laughs) (laughs) Not once. And and you always had to be careful on a par three, because when you get on a par three, every player's given the every caddy's giving the player the same yardage. So I had to sort of whisper in his ear so the other caddy you know, didn't hear what I was saying because I'd be going, hang on, you—you've this guy's telling his player this far and you're telling me this far, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, amazingly, in, in the entire time I caddied for Tiger, um, it, it, it never actually cost, you know, it, it was amazing how many times I did it and, and I always had the feel for it.
0: So it was more of a mental thing that you knew that if Tiger had a perfect yardage, which you would, you know, made up out of thin air, that he would make a nice aggressive swing on it. He would be more confident in the swing. And was there, was it was it only mental or was there some physical element into why he did that?
1: Well, no, just when he had a perfect yardage, he made a perfect swing and always had a good shot. And, and look, a lot of times you just get a feel that the ball's going to go a little bit extra. It's going to go, you know... You know, sometimes I don't think he knew how pumped up he was and how far he was hitting it, too. That's another reason why I did it frequently is I brought the yardage back because he was he was just so pumped up all the time. Uh, and, and a lot of times when guys get adrenaline guns and they don't realise that and they don't realise how far they're hitting it. I mean, when he got the adrenaline really going, um, it, you know, his distances were prodigious. So, you know, I factored that in and it just became something I did normally. And, you know, so, you know... It was just one of those things, but yeah, that, that was the very first time, And had I been wrong, um, I might not have been talking to you right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you might, you might have been fired on that day. In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass, which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course, and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So, that's amazing. If we go back to that PGA, on the 18th hole, Bob holds a 15-footer for birdie, and that, that actually, you know he was looking like he was a little bit out of the hole and then he sinks a 15-footer for birdie. That then puts the pressure on Tiger to sink a 6-foot birdie part, bit of a knee knocker just to force a playoff. It was just incredible golf, wasn't it? What what were you saying to Tiger all day to keep him focused and to keep him in that battle?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he, he, he like he said, he, he knew, you know, he didn't tell me until the 12th hole, but he, he knew this guy was going to challenge him. Um, you know, he, he, it's like it was his big occasion and. He had all these records in Southern California, and then this guy Tiger Woods comes along and takes all those records off him. So I think if there's one record that he could stand up and say was going to be the biggest record of all, was that I was the guy that challenged Tiger Woods down the street and beat him. So there was a lot, you know, there's a lot at stake. And, you know, his putt on the 18th pole, Bob May hit that putt, you know, 15 feet, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the greatest putt. He hit it like 15 feet away, and the whole sort of mindset, well, you know, he's probably not going to make that putt because he's got a very difficult putt, double breaker coming down the hill. He's probably not going to make that. And Ty didn't have this putt to win the PGA. And all of a sudden, this guy sinks in. I didn't expect him to sink it either. And it sort of didn't look like it was going into me. And it sort of, I, I thought it was missing on the right. And all of a sudden, it just curled back to the left and it went in. And I mean, the crowd went absolutely you know, ballistic. You know and then so now tiger's got the hardest part you can have in golf to win a tournament tie a tournament whatever it might be it's six footer down the hill you know with quite a bit of break it's not the easiest part in the world you know and he buries that thing and the, the so after they checked their scorecards and so forth and we were heading back out to the start of the three-hole playoff, we were riding on the on a golf cart with one of the officials taking us out there, and Tiger was sitting in the front, and I was on the back there, and I said to Tiger, what were you thinking standing over that putt? And you won't believe what he said to me. He said, my mum could make this putt. Your Tiger Woods just buried it.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: <laughs> that's incredible. He, that's what he was thinking standing over it. My mum would make this putt. Your Tiger Woods, you just make it.
0: That's what made him so good. He was able to simplify some of the moments where other players might have been too nervous and absolutely messed that putt up. But that—that's what made him so great. Now, Steve, the first hole of the playoff—it was actually a three-hole playoff for the PGA Championship. The first hole of this three-hole playoff was memorable because Bob missed the green with his second shot, but then hit an amazing chip shot with a uh, pitch shot with his third. He nearly holed that for birdie, left himself with a with a tap-in par. Tiger had a 25-footer for birdie and rolled in one of the most famous putts of his career because he knows it's going in, he starts running after the ball and then he famously points at it with his finger as the putt drops. Tiger takes a one-stroke lead and then um, he held on for for the victory eventually because both Bob and Tiger made pars on the last two holes. But I actually want to talk about something that's been unofficially called the phantom bounce theory because it still gets brought up to this day. And basically what it is, on the last hole of that three-hole playoff, Tiger hit a three-wood but he actually snap hooked it way left. And after seconds, seven seconds, I should say, of the, tr- of, of the ball bouncing around in the trees, it mysteriously rockets out to some shorter rough. Tiger makes par to win by one. What, what do you know of this phantom bounce theory?
1: Yeah, look, it was something, of course, at the time, you don't know, you know because the ball was a long way left. And, and from that elevated tee, you couldn't see with that ball, you know, we also know it's a long way left. And, you know, you you get down there and you play your second shot and and just carry on like nothing's happened. But then um, following the event, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk that somehow that ball, you know, might have got help from someone in the gallery to end up where it did. Um, Now, when you watch the replay, I mean, you can't tell because all of a sudden the ball's hit and then it's rock. it, It appears that it's gone into the trees and then some seconds later it comes rolling out. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes they bounce on the cart path, but um, it would be unusual that someone would have thrown it out because there's a lot of people lined along that left side there.
0: Yeah, I don't think we'll ever know, and, and we might just leave it that way. So Tiger's, Tiger and Bob's 18 under par total in regulation actually broke the PGA Championship scoring record relative to par. Tiger wins. He becomes just the second player after Ben Hogan in 1953, as the only players to win three majors, three professional majors in a calendar year. Tiger has now won the US Open, the British Open and the PGA in 2000 to have five majors at the age of 24. It's just incredible, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but not only that, even when you think about it, he broke the scoring record in all three majors. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, like to do that in one season, you know, to break the scoring record at the US Open, then the Open Championship the PGA in one season. I mean, that just tells you at the level that he was playing right there and then. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever put a season together um, like Tiger Woods did in 2000. Um, You know, he he, he didn't simply stop at the PGA either. He he carried on one about four more events after that. It was just, uh, that was an athlete at the height of his career. Um, I mean, he played, you know, sensational golf for a, a number of years following that. But in 2000, I think it was absolutely at its best.
0: Well, that leads me to my next question because this is the last major of 2000 that Tiger won, obviously. So after the PGA, Tiger wins the, the, the very next start, the, the NEC WGC Invitational. He wins the Canadian Open. and Of course, he hits a very famous shot at the Canadian Open to, to win that. He finishes third, then second at the Tour Championship, fifth at the American, WGC American Express, and then wins the Johnny Walker Classic in Thailand to cap out the year. So let's just sum up 2000 for Tiger Woods because it's arguably the greatest season in the history of golf. Tiger ended up winning nine PGA Tour events including three majors and like you mentioned he either broke a margin or scoring record in those three majors. Tom Watson probably summed up Tiger in 2000 best when he said someday I'll tell my grandkids that I played in the same tournament as Tiger Woods. We are witnessing a phenomenon here that the game may never ever see again. Can you reflect on what you witnessed in 2000?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he won nine PJ events, but then he actually went on and he won the Johnny Walker, he won the Grand Slam of Golf, uh, he won that um and he won the World Cup <laughs> as well. <laughs> so I mean he actually won 12 events. Uh he played in like 25 events and won 12 of them. I mean, it was just you know, it, it was it was he he everything when he got to that US Open at Pebble Beach. And Tiger always he had this theory that I want to own my swing. I don't want to. I, I, fit, I don't want to rent my swing. I want to own my swing. And what he meant by that is he believed at some point that you can find a way to swing the club the same every day, every shot, every week. Um, and, and he believed you. And he. he Despite being the greatest player that's ever played, he constantly was tinkering because he believed, like I said, that you could own the swing and not rent your swing. And in in 2000, he owned a swing. He absolutely, through that whole year, it started, I mean, despite playing well before Pebble, but that moment at Pebble Beach is the first time I think Tiger would say, you know, I, I own my swing right now. And for the continuation of that rest of that season, he owned his swing. He wasn't working on anything. He owned his swing. He knew exactly where he was with his swing uh, and everything was in sync. You know, I mean, Tiger had a very fast hip action. Uh, at, you know, Famously, his his line is, he gets the club stuck behind him. And that's what he battled all the time. But in 2000, um, he very seldom had that problem. He was just in sync. He owned his swing and... To stand there and watch a guy for twelve months play like he did um, was absolutely amazing to watch, and you know, his putting it was unreal as well. Obviously, you, you know, you've you've still got to putt good, with, you know, to win tournaments and under pressure. You know, no matter what it did, but you know, the highlight of that year was the battle with Bob May. This is an unheralded guy who came along, and and and, and the fans love that. You know, here you got Tiger Woods. And here you've got this underdog. It's an, it was just absolutely electric, and it's a week I'll never forget.
0: In its 51st year of publication, Australian Golf Digest is the oldest golf media brand in Australia, reaching over 850,000 golfers every month. Australian Golf Digest provides the best written and video news in golf, both locally and internationally. Golf fans can get full access to the magazine through the digital pass which starts from just $3.33 per month and also includes instruction, golf course, and golf travel content. Head over to australiangolfdigest.com.au or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, it's funny you say that because the best seasons in golf history which most people agree on are the following. So, we mentioned Ben Hogan's three majors in 1953... Bobby Jones, the famous amateur, um, won the Grand Slam in 1930 when he won all four of what were considered majors at that time. And then Byron Nelson's 1945 season when Byron won 18 tournaments including 11 in a row. But as someone who witnessed 2000 Tiger Woods from a couple of feet away, do you think Tiger's 2000 season is the greatest season ever in golf and the closest that anyone's ever gotten to perfecting golf? You
1: you can't measure one generation against the next. And this debate over who the greatest player is of all time, Jack Nicholson and Tiger Woods, they played in different eras. It's hard to justify the competitions different and so forth. But, um, you know, Tiger's season of 2000 will be remembered as certainly as one of the, in the modern era, it's certainly the greatest season. But it it stacks up there right with, with, you know, Byron Nelson and um, Ben. And, and, up, and some of the other great seasons being put together.
0: So, Steve, now I want to bring it back to sort of when you um, started caddying for Tiger or just, just not long after that, the year beforehand. So, so there's a stretch from May of 1999 at the TPC Europe tournament in Germany through to the end of 2000 where Tiger played in 34 tournaments worldwide and he won 18 of them. I mean, it's just ridiculous. In that span, he had seven victories by four shots or more and he had only four finishes that were worse than 10th. Now, this is the exact timeline of Tiger switching from the Titleist Professional 90, which was a wound ball, to the Nike Tour Accuracy Solid Core urethane Covered Ball. How, how instrumental was that entire period, or sorry, how instrumental was that golf ball to that success during that period?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, all the pros that play at the greatest level, that you've got to have everything matched up right. And Tiger or any pro is not going to play with, well with some inferior equipment with an inferior ball. You're going to have something that mirrors exactly what you want and Nike were very successful in making a golf ball that absolutely suited him down to the ground. I mean, they worked on it for ages to get the right spin rate and the cover, you know, all the different things that you, a, a pro wants in the ball that he's going to play in that. So, that, that you know, every little piece helps. You know, and that's just one little piece of the jigsaw. But absolutely, that was, you know, that, that Nike ball that, that, that they made for him, absolutely. He loved that ball at that particular, you know, in that given time of, of his career.
0: Well, Steve, yeah, they call it the ball that changed everything. So, Steve, that, that was incredible. I'm looking forward to episode five with you where Tiger might have done something pretty special at the 2001 Masters at Augusta National. So, see you for the next one. Thanks, Evan. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company.